particular situation, there were so many people, and as the priest said, the overflowing numbers in the church were testimony to what kind of a woman she was. I noticed this river of people filing out, and many of their faces red and puffy, and all the veneer of the middle-class comfort, or the, their makeup, or whatever mask or disguise that they had put on for this funeral was just melted away in their grief. And I saw this like river of humanity filing out of the church with this heaviness. Just the sense of their grief, the sense of their lack of refuge, of their lack of knowing how to feel what they were feeling how to really be with it without falling apart and not knowing in the falling apart what would happen to them. So it's like grief plus fear of the grief. And then they were serving refreshments and there was such a lack of presence. People were laughing very loudly and going almost to the other extreme of human emotion. Then we come here and we're sitting in and meditating and that world made up of all those people, we have to go back to it, don't we? Everything that I saw in that river of humanity losing control is not something that exists only out there. It exists here in each of us. So this samsara, this wheel of the world that's constantly turning and burning and churning and out of control with grief, with greed, with happiness, with unhappiness, with gain and loss, with fame, with disgrace, with pleasure, with discomfort, 
it is really not something that we can just turn our backs on and run away because we are same. Whatever they are, we are that. Those same forces are within us too. And we could say, oh no, I'm perfectly peaceful. And I can sit for a whole hour and everything is empty. I don't have any thoughts. I have no ill will. I'm not worried about anything. This is a little bit of delusion going on here. Because we're still full of ignorance. We might have a quote-unquote successful meditation, but just wait when you get out the gate and see what happens then to that wonderful peace. You want to take that peace and shove it in everyone's face. Look, peace, peace, peace. (laughs) So then we see how really aggressive we still are. When I first became a nun, I had really very dear, loving, supportive parents, with a little resistance, of course. Can't you eat in the afternoon? Why don't you join the Tibetan tradition? But my other family members, whenever they saw me, it was anathema. I have an aunt. She still wants to fix me up with someone. (laughs) Ajahn Sumedho used to always tell us that when we went back into the world to visit family, and we were always encouraged to go and spend time with family so that they could know intimately what we were up to, and they wouldn't think that we were some kind of a cult. But at least just spend some time together and see also how it affected us. And he would always tell us, don't try to make your family members Buddhists. Just be like the Buddha. Just be patient, be compassionate, be sensitive, be caring. Try to purify your heart, try to be mindful. Mindful of your own energy and how you use it. Keep the precepts and see danger in the slightest fault. The very slightest transgression, not to escape even our lips, never mind in in conduct, like a, a, a nasty look even, is an aggressive act. So trying to convert, that's not part of this this way, this approach. It's not about trying to change anybody out there. It's just really about trying to convert ourselves. And I don't mean with a belief. It's not even trying to shove peace down our own throats, let alone anyone else's. But it's about being peace. So the taste of truth When the rivers of any continent flow into the sea, they acquire one taste, that is the taste of salt. And so when we practice the Dhamma and we have the taste of truth, no matter who we are, we may have come from royal family, or we may have come from a very rich background, or from a ghetto, or like my family, a refugee family. 
I'm still in Rinpoche, at the feet of the Buddha. Forever in Rinpoche, it's wonderful. When you begin to meditate and practice and discover the truth in your own body-mind, the taste is the same. It's a taste of peace. It's the emptiness of pure awareness. It's the awakened mind. And it has a lovely quality that attracts people. It's completely non-aggressive. It's completely harmless. And you don't have to then go out and wave any flag. People are just attracted to it. Oh, what do you do? People ask me all the time, what do you do? What do I do? I don't do anything. (laughs) This is very confusing to them. I live in a street, an ordinary street. I don't have a beautiful cloister where I can walk privately back and forth, back and forth. I do my back and forth walking on the street. So people walk by with their baby carriages and their dogs. And it's usually very friendly. There's one lady that from the day I moved in, she has two little dogs that she walks twice a day. And she'd see me walking up and down and she would make a sort of arc-shaped walking trajectory to pass me. So when I approached, she would just veer very strongly to one side of the street until I was well out of sight. She's my neighbor. What if something happened to her? I would want to rush there and help her. She's very old. And I felt a strong urge to connect with her. And I had this desire to do something about her aversion. Sort of thing like what we want to do with our aversion. We want to do something to it. It hurts. I want to do something to it. What can I do to get rid of my pain? But then I developed this strong intention that no matter how much aversion she poured in my direction, I was going to try to find ways of short-circuiting it. I was going to find a way to her heart. I didn't know how, and nothing seemed to work. And the first year I was there, I wrote her a little card to thank her for all her hard work because she plants the flowers on the roadside, right opposite my kuti, my little temple. And they're beautiful, huge acapanthus. It's just a bunch of weeds, and it doesn't belong to her, but she makes it beautiful for everyone. So this helped me to cultivate loving kindness up the sand dune in her direction, because her house is up on the dune every day. And not like, may you be well, may you be happy so that you'll be nice to me. (laughs) It was no bargaining. It was unconditional loving kindness. I really just felt happy and grateful towards her even though she was quite unfriendly. Like in that chant we do, radiating loving kindness to all beings, visible or invisible, even if they're hostile or unfriendly, whoever, we we still send that metta in their direction. 
I never had any expectation that one day she would talk to me. I really let that go. And then one day, I was fixing my mailbox, and suddenly, who comes by Gwenda with her two dogs? And then this huge dog came along, and one of her little dogs got separated from her by this big dog. And she kept calling and calling, and it wouldn't come. So I thought, here's my chance. <laughs> I picked the little dog up in my arms, because the little dog had no aversion for me, and dashed over to where she was and handed her the dog. And she was nailed. <laughs> and she just said, thank you. For me, it was a gift. I was so happy the whole day. Gwenda said thank you to me. <laughs> well, you know what? Not only did she say thank you, but a few weeks ago, I went for alms round with my bowl in the village. This is our traditional way of going to collect food. And it's very hard to collect food in a, a village where people don't know what it means. But I sometimes still do it, just to traditionally walk in the village with my bowl, even if I'm not going to get anything. And on the way back, there was Gwenda planting flowers. And I stopped and said, Hi, Gwenda, how are you? Fine. <laughs> and I looked down, and her feet were bleeding. And her hands were all cut. I said, Gwenda, look, you're bleeding. It's nothing, it's nothing, never mind. But are you sure? Can I get you anything? No, no, I don't need anything. It suddenly hit me. She just couldn't receive love. She was so scared to be loved. She just didn't want anyone to do anything nice to her. Maybe because of the fear that she would have to open her heart and love them back. Not sure why. Anyway, I went upstairs, got some band-aids and a bottle of juice and a cup. And I brought it down and I just left it next to her. She said, thank you. She's good at that. <laughs> it's hot. No one's looking after her. She's making this beautiful garden for us. We enjoy it every day. And she was bleeding and not looking after herself. I was so touched. And then, the next morning, I found the glass that I had left with the juice in my mailbox, and inside it was a little note, and it was written in the most beautiful hand, in two different colored pens, and it said, Dear Mom, thank you, Gwen. I feel this was a huge, connecting gesture. Hmm. So, daily life is the way it is. And the world is full of suffering. And it's not always the way we want it to be. And on the street where you live is your monastery, is your practice, is your garden, are the thorns, and are the flowers. And is the compost that smells 
but it makes the flowers grow. And it are the grumpy people and the the conservative people that don't want to know you and don't want to look at you or they have a grudge or they think you're you're a, a hopeless case or maybe they think they're a hopeless case. The whole range of human suffering is there on the street where you live or in your own family. So what are we going to do with it? How are we going to pick up the pieces of our lives and put them together in such a way that we can support what makes this practice thrive? Not just for our own comfort and happiness, but to bring blessings to those people that we share this planet with day by day by day. And it's hard work. Just like poor old Gwenda, this garden that this Gwenda is cultivating every single day on the steep bank of the side of our road, she never sees it really. Her house is up there. We're the ones that see the flowers. So who's the real practitioner? And who's the real Dhamma warrior? I want to think of myself as a spiritual warrior. Then I saw this this woman carrying this heavy shovel, I couldn't even pick it up, and digging on the roadside in the heat of the sun without a hat, old and her blood running down her toes and on her fingers. So who's compassionate? And who is selfless? And who is a real example to me? This person that I just thought was strange and full of aversion and she doesn't know, you know, I'm I'm a nun, I'm a practitioner. All those kind of deluded thoughts of self-view, arrogance, conceit. So first thing, we have to be humble. We can't shove our, our practice on anyone or impose it anywhere. We have to first live it ourselves, really live it. We have to drink the cup of wisdom and truth this minute in our very own lives. And it starts with the most simple thing. It's just being kind to your neighbors, being loving to your parents, your kids, your spouse, your teacher, your colleagues at work. Even if they belittle you, they criticize you. How do we do that? You know, Ajahn Suchino was saying in his Dhamma talk that we shouldn't be making New Year's resolutions the way somebody without teeth would try to chew an organic carrot. But make promises to yourself or wishes for yourself that you can actually fulfill. Little ones. And then check in slowly, slowly. How am I doing? What can I do here to pick up the standard? Pick my heart up. Encourage myself. And one thing that we can do is to treat other people the way we want to be treated. It's a very old law of humanity. 
And it comes from humility. So we want to be loved, love others. Not in a smarmy way. I know some people don't like the mental practice at all because it seems unreal, you know, just may you be well, maybe, this kind of thing. When meanwhile inside, we've got this knife-stabbing kind of tension going on towards ourselves and others, not of self-hatred. If we hate ourselves, if we haven't forgiven ourselves, if we're full of bitterness and resentment, if we feel like a hopeless case, how are we going to bring a quality of loving-kindness to even to the present moment, let alone someone else. That's why this practice is so important. That's why it's called practice, because we have to start where we are, and then day by day, like a sculptor working with marble, which is hard stone, isn't it? It's not easy to sculpt. So very, very slowly, slowly, you polish. Just like a river, that makes a deep gorge in a mountain, that takes thousands of years for that exquisite sculpting of the mountain to occur. Or just like a piece of coal through the pressure of the earth on it, after thousands of years, you dig it up and it's a diamond. So this is how we have to practice. Day by day, what is this practice? It's being in the present moment. It's renouncing the past. We renounce the moment before the present moment. We renounce the moment after the present moment. We take the present moment as our whole world. We try to greet it with a heart that is receptive, not aggressive. We receive it as it is. One breath, present moment. That's all we have. And then we observe how we respond to it. We might kick. We might protest. We might resist. We might demand. We might enjoy. We might get excited. We might be full of grief. We might hate it. Because it's full of all our conditioning. Whatever we suffered as kids, whatever we've done in past lives, whatever we haven't resolved in our hearts is going to arise right there in the present moment. It may arise as a pain in the body, as tension, as constriction, as exhaustion. The human journey means suffering. It has a cause, an origin. It's conditioned. It has an ending, too. The moment arises, it is sustained for a while, and then it disappears, it fades. And the suffering that is in it also arises and ceases. Anger, misery, depression, grief. It's so insubstantial, it's so unreliable. All these afflictive emotions that we keep hanging on to and identifying with and that we allow to spin us around on the Ferris wheel of life. So in that present moment, this is the field of our cultivation. Supposing you are a farmer 
and you had a small field to cultivate and it was stony and it was not so easy to irrigate, what would you do? Well, you'd get out your tools and you'd go and start picking out the stones one by one, bit by bit. Why? Because what else are you going to do to feed yourself and your family? The field that you've been given, you've got to cultivate it the way it is. So we were born into this life we were born into a certain set of conditions, a karmic predicament. And this is what we have. So this is where we cultivate, wherever we are. Not out of an idea of how it should be, or what we would like it to be. Whatever stones or burdens we're carrying, we pick up the present moment. We see those stones. We see the way we, we respond to the conditions that we have. And we slowly, slowly start to drop the stones from our hearts. The sooner we realize where that suffering begins, the sooner we can understand how to awaken from that suffering, how to be able to abide in the place of non-suffering, how to go to the deathless. By picking up the pieces of our lives, and seeing them for what they really are. They are impermanent. They are insubstantial. They are unsatisfactory in and of themselves. They can never satisfy our hunger. I can take the energy of anger or fear or grief and turn it towards awakened awareness. It becomes my teacher. I endure, and the present moment opens up to me in wisdom, in greater understanding. Because the understanding of suffering doesn't come through having things the way we want, but through feeling that suffering in the very marrow of our bones. Yeah, maybe through cancer. And when we let go, then we feel that liberation. In the marrow of the moment, we feel that suffering. And as we die to the present moment, we are truly alive. This is one of the most powerful moments for a human being, moment of death. It's a potential to be a moment of awakening. We wake up. And we completely let go all the impurity in the heart and mind forever. It means being wisely aware. It's an awakened awareness that holds all conditions in its arms unconditionally. Not choosing, not picking up this and rejecting that. It doesn't reject anything. It picks up the whole world as it is. We go forth into the battlefield with our hearts completely open, courageous and willing to meet all beings as they are. We want to meet our lives wholeheartedly because as much kindness, as much forgiveness as we bring to the present moment, then there's no reason for us to hide. 
there's no, no more reason to be ashamed. We will never be able to hurt ourselves or anyone else again. And then we will have become one that has really gone forth. The, the one that takes up the robe we're called homeless, gone forth ones. But the real homelessness is in the breath. It's in the present moment. It's making the, the arrows into flowers on the street where you live. Anamayam amakataya sadhukaram vadamasai